going to be continuing a series, the second one in a series we started last week, and the series is entitled, Does the Bible Really Say? And so last week we asked the question, does the Bible really say uh, that God won't give you more than you can handle? And Tony did a great job walking us through that and, and helped us to realize, no, the Bible does not say that. That there are times in our lives where we do get more than we can handle. And they help point us back to God and make us realize how much we need God and how much we need each other. This morning, we're going to tackle another one. Uh, Another saying that probably many of you, or some of you at some point may have believed came from the Bible as well. The question we're going to be asking this morning is, does the Bible really say to forgive and forget? Now, maybe this is an idea you've wrestled with in the past, or maybe it's something that you're wrestling with right now. Uh, but if it is, uh, you, you, you probably, uh, it's probably a tough one for you. Because if you've been around the Bible or church for any length of time, you know that forgiveness is a major theme in the Bible. But if you've been hurt recently, or you have, if you're carrying that burden, the idea to forgiveness itself is difficult enough, Right? But to you, the idea of forgetting seems impossible. And so if the Bible really does say forgive and forget, that may feel overwhelming. So what we're going to do this morning is explore where that came from, how we got there, and if it's true. Now, to begin to wrap our minds around this idea, we're first going to look at one of the passages where this saying comes from. So if you've got your Bibles in front of you, turn with, you, turn with me to Jeremiah 31, 34. It's Jeremiah 31, 34. Uh, It's just one verse, but there is a lot in this verse that will help us understand this idea. Jeremiah 31, 34. It reads like this. It says, No longer will they teach their neighbors or say to one another, Know me, or know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. So if we started off this this morning worried that the Bible might actually say forgive and forget, this probably isn't overly helpful. Because on first glance, it seems like that's what it's saying, right? We, We read this passage in the last line there. It says, for I will forgive their wickedness. And I will remember their sins no more. Or in other words, I will forget their sins. Forgive and forget is what it looks like at first. But as we slow down and take a close look at this passage and realize what it's really saying, I'll assure you that's not actually what it's saying. So there are three other passages in the Bible that express the same idea as Jeremiah 31, 34. And those are Isaiah 43, 25, and then Hebrews 8, 12, and Hebrews eleven seventeen. Now, it's important to notice a few things about those, however. Uh, the two passages in Hebrews are actually quoting Jeremiah, uh, so they, which, which means something. That means that they aren't unique to the New Testament. And that's going to matter if we, when we take a look at it in just a second. Also, the passage in Isaiah says nearly the same thing as Jeremiah, but most importantly is it uses the same Hebrew language. So when we slow down for a minute and take a close look at this passage, uh, one of the, we'll realize a couple of things. First, what we realize is that what we're reading in our English Bibles here is a translation from Hebrew. Now, a lot of times that doesn't matter. Our English translators do a really good job of capturing the ideas from the original Greek or the original Hebrew, which is what the Bible was written in, and translating it into English for us. So most of the time, it doesn't matter all that much to go back to the original. However, 
There are certain circumstances in which it matters a whole lot, and this is one of them. So we realize that when we're reading it in English, that, 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 we're, that we're taking it from a translation, which means that our rules of opposites don't apply. Why that matters is that when we look at that passage closely, we see that the passage does not say that God forgot anything. It says that he will remember it no more. Now you might be thinking, well, Brent, isn't, isn't the opposite of remembering to forget? And in English, that's true. If we want to throw up the next slide. To forget something in English means is this. That's the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. It defines it like this. To forget is to be unable to think of or remember. Okay, so it's the opposite of remember. So if it can't remember something, then I have forgotten it in English. But remember, we're not reading this in English. We're reading, it in, we're reading a translation from Hebrew, and there are two Hebrew words that, mean, that are translated to forget. Shekach and Neshach. I tried the little throat thing there. It sounded weird, sorry. <laughs> not a good Hebrew speaker. But those two words in Hebrew are translated to forget. And you'll notice the definition is a little different. To forget in Hebrew means this, to ignore or to neglect or forsake or willfully act in disregard to a person or covenant. Now, when you put those two definitions up next to each other, there's some things that you'll be able to notice right off the bat. First, in English, to forget is primarily a cerebral action, right? You're unable to think of or remember. Not, it's almost exclusively a cerebral action. It's, you, something in your mind is not there. You're not able to get it. But if you look at the Hebrew definition, to ignore, to neglect, or forsake, or willfully act in disregard to, those aren't very cerebral things, are they? The primary focus of the Hebrew is not a cerebral thing, but an action taken, right? You're doing something. Now that matters. This has big implications as we read a lot of the Old Testament. Uh, because a lot of times in the Old Testament, when we talk about forgetting, uh, we realize that that's what we're talking about. So when it says that Israel forgot God, it's not saying that they couldn't remember his name anymore, or they couldn't remember what he had done, or that they couldn't recall the things that had happened. It means that they are ignoring him, or neglecting him, or forsaking him, or willfully acting in disregard to him. It's focused on the actions that they take, not their, not their ability to recall. Now, all of that's interesting, but remember, we read, the passage we read doesn't actually say forget. The, the word shaka or nasha is not used in Jeremiah. Uh, it doesn't say that God forgot. It says that God will not remember. And as we'll see in a second, that's different than what we think of and forget. So we can flip the next side up. Again, in English, the Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines remembering actually in three ways. This is just one of the three, but they're all very similar. It defines to remember to keep information in your mind, or in other words, to not forget. Now, the other three were the same ideas, that there was to be able to recall something that happened in the past. It's primarily an intellectual action, almost exclusively a cerebral action. But when we look at to remember in Hebrew, we see the word zakar, which means to bring something or someone to mind in order to act according to it or them. Again, the focus is not on your mind, but on the action taken, Right? Maybe an example will help us uh, wrap our minds around this a little bit better. If you were to flip in your Bibles to Genesis 8, verse 1, you don't have to, but because I'll tell you the story. In Genesis 8, verse 1, it's the end of the flood story. 
So the, the, the earth has flooded and Noah is floating around out there. And, uh, and, and so he can't see anything but water. And the Bible says that in Genesis 8-1 that God remembered Noah. Or in other words, God zakarred Noah. Now this isn't saying that God had cleared Noah out of his consciousness. God wasn't hanging out in heaven playing cards with Michael. And if you're Baptist, it's probably offensive because there will be no cards in heaven. <laughs> Sorry about that. My wife grew up Baptist. That's a Baptist joke. Ha. <laughs> no, he's not up in heaven just hanging out where Michael looks at him and says, hey, God, weren't you supposed to do something with that Noah guy? And he goes, oh my goodness, completely forgot, and then goes and does something. It's not what the Bible is saying. When the Bible says that God remembered Noah, it's saying that God brought him to the front of his mind in order to do something in regards to him. In this case, in order to begin the end of the flood. Now, hopefully this all makes sense because this, again, is, is something that as you read the Old Testament in particular, keep these things in mind. When, when we talk about remembering or forgetting, the focus in Hebrew is always on the action taken, not on the ability to recall. And that matters a lot because you, <clears throat> if you're paying attention, to remember things or to forget things is a big deal throughout the Old Testament. So back to our passage then. Jeremiah 31, 34 which says, No longer will they teach their neighbors or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. <clears throat> this passage says that God will zakar their sins no more. God will no longer take action in accordance to their sins. Right? God doesn't in this passage clear his conscience or clear his uh, clear this offense from his consciousness. And if you really to stop and think about that, you'd wonder how that would be even be possible. He doesn't lose the ability to recall the event or the sins done. He's not, able to, he's not unable to think of our sin. He is instead declaring that he is no longer going to take action according to it. That's a pretty significant difference. And so as we talk about all of these definitions and these words... You might be interested. I, for me, I know this is really interesting and I hope it is to all of you. But the question still remains, so what? What do we do with all that? Why does it matter? And so for the second half of the message this morning, I want to talk a bit about how that relates to forgiving. We talked about what it means in the Bible to remember or forget, and particularly in regards to the Old Testament. But what, is, what does that have to do with forgiving? But before we move into there, I think there's a few, there are a few things that we just need to get out on the table. Some things that we have to acknowledge before we get started. And one of them may be obvious or simple, but it's important. And that is the fact that when someone wrongs us or slights us, it hurts. And it might even hurt badly. It might do damage, real damage, to your psyche or your person. Now, maybe that's obvious, and it probably is if you were to stop and think about it. But I've found so often that when we talk about forgiveness, we don't give as much weight to the pain of being wronged as we ought. We can be flippant. The Bible says forgive, so just do it. I'm just move on. But the fact of the matter is, there are times in our lives in which actions or the actions or the words of another per person are incredibly hurtful or damaging. And we have to acknowledge that those times are not insignificant. 
Because unfortunately, those times are the times that we most often hear the phrase, just forgive and forget, move on, get over it. I don't know about you, but in my experience, it's so much easier to talk about forgiveness than to actually do it because of that pain. Now granted, there are some people out there who are blessed with the ability to forgive easily. And that is a wonderful thing. If you are that person, don't lose it because it's huge. But for many of us, forgiveness is a really difficult thing. When we're hurt by someone, it creates a debt between the two people involved. Now that debt can be emotional or it can be physical, but both impact our lives in really significant ways. And maybe an example will make this easier to understand. So let's imagine that I have $100. And this fictional person, we'll just call him John. It's a nice generic name. Uh, He doesn't exist. He's not real. But let's say that he steals that $100 from me. Takes it. Now, we, in some, in one way, it's really easy to see that he's created a debt between us, right? I used to have $100, now I don't because John took it from me. I'm down $100 from where I started. There's a physical damage, a physical debt that, that was there, right? And so if John and I were to be made right, uh, we would, to be restored to the place our relationship started, John would need to pay me back what he stole, right? He would have to make his physical debt whole or make it right. But we realize that's not all that happens there, right? If he stole that from me, my trust of John would now be broken. My feeling of safety might be broken. I might feel violated or disrespected. Now you get the point, there are a variety of reactions that I could have to being robbed, depending on who I am and how that affects me. And so for John and I to be made right, he'd have to pay me back that $100, but he would also have to find ways to restore all of those debts. And that's why we can, and that's one of, now we might be beginning to see why restoration in this world is so difficult. By beginning to see why people can fight so intensely for so long. If we live lives that require every debt to be paid, we get stuck in a never-ending measuring contest filled with real debt that has ambiguous solutions. Which is why God calls us to forgiveness. In the Bible, it's over and over again says that God has asked us not to hold on to what we are owed. He has called us to release those debts. And yes, that comes at a cost. Because in the realm of fairness, we have every right to demand repayment. But in God's kingdom, things are different. Now, whenever we talk about forgiveness in this way, I, and I can see it now too probably, there are a few people that are starting to squirm in their seats. There's the same objection every single time, and it's this. The question is, Brent, are you saying that we should not pursue justice? Right, sure, in the example of $100, it may be easy enough to forgive that and then move on, like nothing happened. But what if it had been greater? What if it had been $10,000? What if John broke into my house and terrified my family or did something much, much worse? What if he, and you can fill in the blank, Are we saying that we should not take action against him? Should we not advocate that he goes to jail? 
No, we're not saying that, and this is why. This is where the Hebrew idea of remembering comes into play. So in our passage earlier, we see that God does two distinct things. First, he forgives the people's wickedness. He forgives the debt owed as a result of their sin. And if you didn't catch it already, the, the, the context of Jeremiah is talking about Christ. Christ coming and he's going to do those things. So God forgives the people's wickedness. He forgives the debt owed as a result of their sin. But he also does something else. He doesn't remember it. Or in other words, from our definition earlier, he chooses not to act on it. Or still in other words, God offers mercy. In this case, in the case of Jesus Christ, he offers both forgiveness and mercy together. They come as a package deal in this passage. But it's important to recognize that it isn't always what God does. God forgives often, that's true. He does it in the nation of Israel often. And yet there were times when even in his forgiveness, he would allow them to experience the consequences of their actions. Times that he would offer forgiveness without mercy. There's a really good example of that, and that's in the life of Moses. Moses and God were on pretty good terms for most of Moses' life, right? He's kind of the, a big deal. But there's one incident, one incident, and you might remember this uh, from the Bible or not. There was a time when God told Moses, speak to this rock because I want water to come out of it. And Moses instead whacks it with his staff. Remember that story? He hits it, and then the water comes out of the rock. The result of that, God says, because you disobeyed, because you didn't do what you were supposed to do, you will no longer be able to enter the promised land. That was the penalty God gave Moses. Now from that time on, God and Moses, they got back together, but they did a whole bunch of great things after that. God forgave Moses for that offense, but he didn't give him mercy. Moses had to live with that consequence till the end. It was never removed, and there are quite a few examples of that in the Bible. You see, there are consequences for our actions. And to forgive is not to eliminate those consequences. The opposite of justice is not forgiveness, it's mercy. So in our scenario, John stole from me. He violated my person and thus created a debt between us. But he also broke the laws of the justice system we live a part of. I can forgive the debt that John owes me. I can release him from his physical and emotional debt while not offering mercy. In other words, I can forgive John while still letting him face jail time or whatever else the system I'm a part of deems appropriate. Offering forgiveness and offering mercy are different things. Now, of course, there are times when the two work hand in hand. We saw that in the passage this morning. And perhaps in the $100 incident, I can both forgive and offer mercy together. But as the offense works its way up the scale of severity, mercy becomes less and less likely. And if we take a close look at it, that's not necessarily a bad thing. If John is in a scenario which he stole the money from me because he needed to feed his family and had no other option, perhaps my act of mercy would open a door for the restoration of not just John, but perhaps his entire family. Where we could say there are people in this world that want to help you regardless of what you've done in the past. Please come be a part of us and let us find a better way than theft to take care of your needs. Maybe forgiveness and mercy would allow that in that instance. But 
If John was a, was a criminal who had, who had lived his entire life feeling entitled to the things that he took, or that he never had to face the consequences for any of his actions, perhaps the best thing is to allow him to experience those consequences. And you might have met somebody like that where they say, for, for me or for this person that I know, the best thing that ever happened to them was when they went to jail or when they had to deal with this or when they actually had to take the gross consequences for their actions. Sometimes the most loving thing to do is to offer forgiveness right alongside of mercy. Other times it's to allow someone to have the consequences for their actions. But before we move on, and I wish that I had three hours this morning, but I don't. We only have a so. This is part that I had to cut out, but I still want to leave it here just at least a little bit. Before we move on, we don't have time this morning to talk about all the things the Bible has to say about offering mercy. We can't. But we, we have just said that forgiveness and mercy are not required to go together. But I want to be very clear that this does not give us license to be stingy with our mercy. The Bible often talks about being gratuitous with our mercy. They're not required to go together, but it still calls us to be gratuitous. Sometimes the most loving thing to do is to let someone experience the consequences of their actions, but many times it's not. And so whatever situation you find yourself in, I want to challenge you to be truly prayerful and discerning about what scenario you are a part of. Just because they don't have to go together doesn't mean they shouldn't. Hopefully we're all on the, still on the same page. To forgive is to release or to pay or to cancel a debt. And that's not the same thing as offering mercy, which is canceling the consequences of one's actions in the realm of justice. But there might be one more thing that's out there that's, that's nagging on some of you. Whenever we have the question of forgiveness... Inevitably, you might, people ask themselves, or me, does forgiveness require a reconciliation of relationship? Then following that up, what if the person who needs to be forgiven doesn't believe they've done anything wrong? And as a result, they're likely to repeat their offense. What if the person is currently actively causing pain, continually doing things that cause pain because of an addiction or a disregard to you as a person? What if the pain of seeing that person is just still too great because of the thing that happened and it causes more damage? Those are great questions. They're real questions. And maybe you have other questions that are along with that as well. And so I want to bring us back to what we said at the beginning of the second part of this message where we acknowledge that we can truly cause each other a lot of pain. We can do real damage to one another. It's important to acknowledge that some aspects of some people are dangerous to other people. It's not the way it's supposed to be, but it's the reality of the fallen world we live in. Now, in the past, when I've had to think about forgiveness in my own life, or when someone has slighted me in my own life, I've also often personified it like this. And this is not just from me, but because we, we talk about this, whether we're Christian or not, that when someone slights us, it's like getting stabbed. And we talk about that. If someone betrays you, it's like stabbing them in the back, right? And so when someone does something to us that hurts, it's like they stick a knife into us. Now the size, and the, and the, um, the size of the knife and the damage it's done is relative to the offense. But it, but, it, but it hurts in that same kind of way. And then so for me, to forgive is to pull out the knife. 
and then not throw it back at the person because we're, we're, we're releasing the debt, right? So if being hurt, being slighted is like being stabbed, we recognize a few things in that way. First, to pull it out allows you to begin to heal. But the contrary to that is true as well, that if you get stabbed and refuse to pull it out, it never heals. And we've probably met people like that too, or maybe you're in that space where you were hurt years and years and years and years ago, and you can't bring yourself to forgive, but then whenever you experience or go back to that moment, it hurts just as bad as it did the first day it happened. The knife's still there. It's still causing pain. It might even be worse because it's become infected, right? And so to forgive is to pull out the knife. But we can recognize something there too, that if you were stabbed, to pull out a knife isn't comfortable. It hurts. And that's the truth of forgiveness too. Forgiveness can hurt. It can cause a lot of pain just to forgive. We also recognize that even after we pull out a knife, a wound will still remain. Forgiveness has taken place, but the pain or some of the pain can remain. And we acknowledge that that wound may take time to heal. We need to acknowledge those things when we talk about forgiveness, especially in regards to reconciling relationships. We can cause each other real harm. To forgive that harm and to begin to heal can and many times is painful. And even after we have forgiven, pain still might remain. And that wound may take time to heal. So let's recognize for the last minute here how that relates to reconciling a relationship. If I'm still in pain and wounded from a wound freshly given, a wound that's begun to heal but is still very tender or vulnerable, it may not be wise for me to put myself in a situation where there's a high likelihood that I will be stabbed again or even maybe poked. If you... But to, be, to forgive is, to not, is not to be unwise. Ultimately, our goal is to reconcile all relationships. That's the way it will be on the new earth. But in our broken world, that takes a lot of work from both sides of the equation. If you're in a situation in which one of the two parties is unwilling or unable to take care of their stuff, reconciliation may not be possible in that space. And there are even times where it may not be preferable for that time. As our wounds begin to heal, which depending on their severity could be quickly or very slowly, we can then begin to explore the possibility of reconciliation. But we realize that forgiveness does not require us to do that before then. So in closing, when we explore the question, does the Bible really say forgive and forget? We realize that no, it doesn't say that, especially the way that we mean it in English. The Bible does not ask us to try to get to a place where we can no longer recall what happened in the past. The Bible doesn't ask us to just move on or ignore the pain or the hurt caused by the event or the other person. The Bible does, however, challenge us to live lives freeing one another from the debts that would otherwise be constantly accumulating. It doesn't ask us to pretend like nothing happened. It doesn't even ask us to remove every consequence each time. But we are called to forgive always. To release one another from what they owe us. 
We are called to be gratuitous with mercy, but not commanded to grant it in every circumstances. circumstance. We're called to seek reconciliation, but to do so wisely, understanding that wounds take time to heal. We realize that as we close today, that forgiveness is incredibly difficult. There's no program or formula we can plug in our individual situations and just get the answer. This is how you're supposed to do it. Because life isn't static. We continue to hurt each other even in the midst of forgiveness, right? And there's a whole new set of things to forgive for. It's not easy. It takes wisdom. There are many layers to any situation. And it can be difficult to figure out exactly how to navigate each part. What do, you, what do I need to own? What do you need to own? Where have you been hurt? Where have I been hurt? To even recognize where we've been hurt can be tough. And it's okay to spend time working through that. Pray over it. Pray for wisdom. Pray that God will reveal where you need to forgive and what, what debts you're holding on to. Pray for wisdom and how to, how to release other people from those spaces or where to ask to be released for yourself. Pray for God's wisdom, but also use the wisdom of your brothers and sisters in Christ around you. Forgiveness won't be easy. It's hard. But God has commanded it often. And I've said this a lot of times up here. We've always asked the question, why does God tell us to do anything? Forgiveness is hard, but we know that as God, as God has told us in all the things that he's asked us to do, he asked us to do it because it truly is the best way to live. The best way to live is a life released from debt for you where you have no debt and you're not holding against anyone else. Let's pray. Father God, give us the strength to be able to forgive. Give us the wisdom to know how to forgive and where to forgive. Give us, give us the humility to be able to deal with our own stuff and the strength to be able to deal with others. God, we know that all of this is only possible because of the forgiveness you gave us. Our debt was massive and yet you died and paid it for us. God, again, we pray that we can fix our eyes upon you that you are, an you are our example of forgiveness and what that looks like. We pray all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ through the power of your spirit. Amen. So like we said, all forgiveness is only possible because we've been forgiven. The, the song that we close with tonight is perfect for that part of the message. So we, as we sing the power of the cross, re